Good morning. I didn't realize we were only singing two verses. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is good to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent. Worship in this place is a wonderful experience on any Sunday morning, but during this Christmas season, it's just extra special. Well, for those of you who know me, uh, you may not be surprised by this, but I am the oldest child in my family. And so when I was young, I got to teach my mom and dad a lot of things about parenting. <laughs> Lesson number one was that children repeat everything you say or do. Once I learned to talk, my mom and dad took to calling one another mommy and daddy because they really didn't appreciate a toddler referring to them as Betsy and Gary. Our oldest daughter, Alia, taught us the same lesson. Every time she did something noteworthy, like build a block tower, she would clap her little hands together and say, yay, Alia. And it wasn't because she had a huge ego. It was because we thought that everything she did was amazing. So every time she did something, we would look at her and say, yay, Alia. And so she loved that, and she repeated what we did. Children watch everything that we say and do. They imitate our words, our mannerisms, our facial expressions. That's why if you've been here for a family dedication, you know that we impress upon the people who are closest to the family the importance of being models for that child because they will be watched in everything they say and do. They will want to be like us. As Miss Shelley showed the kids a few minutes ago, when a couple wants to adopt a child, they often put together a profile booklet. The idea of the book is to sell them to the biological mother. She looks through lots of books from lots of people. She looks at smiling couples who would like to raise her child. She reads the letters that they write about how much they will love her child. And then she makes a really difficult decision about who she wants her little one to grow up to be like. God was once in a similar situation. He was preparing to hand his child over to another to raise. It wouldn't be a job for just anyone. This child would be the Messiah, so his growing up years needed to provide him with a really good model. Like any child, he would watch and imitate his parents' behavior. His values and his priorities would be shaped by theirs. But God didn't open it up to an applicant pool. As he considered his options, he also didn't take the predictable route. He didn't choose a happy couple with the resources to raise his child in luxury. He didn't choose parents with the maturity and the experience and the education to recommend them. He didn't choose influential power brokers or the who's who of the Jewish elite. Instead, God entrusted his child to Mary. She wasn't yet married, she was very young, and she was poor. These are not characteristics that would typically recommend someone for parenthood. Protestants 
have typically embraced a demure Mary as part of the nativity story. We picture a humble young girl, obliging and deferential. And Mary did submit to God's will, but she was no shrinking violet. She was a woman of fierce conviction and deep faith. Think about what she faced. She was a Jewish woman who was living under an oppressive political regime. She, uh, the rules of society would have allowed a woman in her condition, an unmarried pregnant woman, to be stoned to death. She would have to stand up to the whispers and the speculation of her neighbors for her entire life because who would really believe that her unplanned pregnancy was God's work? She was probably widowed as a young woman and left with a family to raise on her own. So this was not a job for the faint of heart, which is why unmarried and young and poor as she was, God chose Mary to be Jesus's mother. Mary passionately loved God and she would teach her children to do the same. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter one. Maybe you have a Bible app on your phone. We're going to look primarily at Mary's song, but we'll start with the words of the angel. So Mary's story really began when an angel visited her and told her that she was to become the mother of God. His words to her in Luke 1.28, greetings, you who are highly favored. And then he outlined the essential details of what was about to happen. The Holy Spirit would overshadow her, she would become pregnant, and she would give birth to the Son of God. After receiving this life-altering news, Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. We only get a little bit of their conversation, but I can imagine the two women as they worked alongside one another, talking about their futures and how different they would be from what these women had envisioned for themselves. In Elizabeth, Mary found refuge and encouragement, what she needed to propel her forward. When it all settled in, Mary sang a song, but it wasn't what we would have expected. It's not the sweet lullaby of an expectant mother. Listen to her words in Luke chapter one, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary's song is full of emotion. She'd had to come to grips with the death of her own dream for her future. 
And she did, and then she sang defiantly of the new mission that God had called her to. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom we sometimes see in paintings. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas cards. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. In this song, we discover Mary's top two priorities. The first is magnifying God, and the second is bringing justice to his people. And so we begin to see why God chose Mary to raise his son. Her song begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. And magnifies means exactly what it sounds like. It means to increase or to make large. What's the largest thing in your life? If you were to sing a song that began like Mary's, you'd sing, my soul magnifies what? Maybe you're able to say that God is the most important thing in your life. I hope that's true. I want it to be true for me and for the people I love. But will you take a minute and get really honest with yourself? Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What do you talk about when you're in conversation with people? If someone were to walk into your house, what would they learn about you? If they were to examine your social media posts, what would they conclude about what you magnify? What is largest in your life? Most of us in this room live in Alabama, probably most of you watching as well. And so maybe football is a part of your life. Football and faith are not mutually exclusive. In fact, football can be an instrument through which faith is shared. But occasionally, it vies for that number one spot. Our family jokes that the best time to go to the grocery store is during an Alabama game because everyone else is home watching TV or in Tuscaloosa. I'm picking on football because it's easy. There's really nothing wrong with being a football fan with some friendly competition or rooting for your favorite team. As long as your passion for football or anything else isn't larger than your passion for Jesus. Ask yourself, are you more animated in a conversation about your favorite team or your faith? Do you spend more time watching games or growing your relationship with God? Another way to determine what is largest in your life is how you spend your money. Do you see your finances as a blessing from God to be managed as he would want? Or does money seem to evaporate in your effort to keep up? Mortgages and bills, vacations, devices, extracurriculars and trends. Do you spend an inordinate amount of time feeling stressed about how to make ends meet? Or do you trust God to, to meet your needs? Money is a complicated topic, but an inventory of where your money goes can be very revealing when it comes to what you are magnifying in your life. Mary would have known a passage of scripture called the Shema. It begins in Deuteronomy 6.5, and it's probably familiar to most of you. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In other words, magnify the Lord. Not just a little bit, not halfway, 100% magnify the Lord. Make him largest. But maybe you're asking, why does any of this really matter? Some of you live in a world of abundance, where the latest trends vie for your attention, and you find yourself easily sucked into a world that has so many good things. Some of you may feel the lack, and you magnify the challenges because they just seem to grow no matter how hard you work to keep them at bay. Both bad things and good things can take over to the point where there's no room left for the best thing. One benefit of magnifying God in your life is that everything else recedes to the proper place. When God is magnified, then fear of what the future holds, anxiety about what others think about you, challenges about the choices that you have to make, all of these shrink under the magnified glory of God. Putting God first allows us to have an eternal perspective where what really matters overwhelms the things that don't. That's why Mary could see beyond the difficulty of her circumstances and submit herself to what God asked her to do and to be. That's what will allow you to fulfill God's purpose for your life. It also matters because the people you care about are watching. Maybe you're a parent or a grandparent. Maybe you supervise people in your workplace. Maybe you're a coach or a teacher or a tutor, or you have nieces and nephews who look up to you. Those who look up to you will likely magnify the same things you do. And if they feel that relationship with God isn't a priority for you, then they'll likely think the same. The next verses of the Shema go like this. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. We might all agree that it's important to teach these things to our children, but do we really appreciate just how important it is? There are, after all, other things in life. So imagine, if you will, Mary and Joseph as they're raising Jesus, and there are some temptations for things that they might want him to be involved in. There was the school fishing team. All of the others would cast their nets, come back empty. All Jesus had to do was throw it in the other side, and he would beat the competitors every time. Or the water skiing team out there on the Sea of Galilee, the others would be trying to stay upright on their skis while Jesus was skiing barefoot without a boat. And the Great Bethlehem Bake Off, it was like the loaves just multiplied when Jesus began to bake. In the chemistry club, he was the only one who could turn water into wine. The colleges would have been beating down his door, begging him to join them if only Mary had spent a little more time allowing Jesus to develop his other talents. 
If you're a parent, you might be getting a little antsy, wondering if I'm about to tell you to quit all of your extracurricular activities. I'm not. God gave your children talents, and he can use them for his glory. It's just that it's really easy for the extras to squeeze out the essential if we're not careful. There are so many things vying for our attention when we're raising kids. That's why the instructions in the Shema urge us to undergird the routines of life with faith talk. These extracurriculars will someday fade away. They'll disappear, but a relationship with God has the potential to last for eternity. There's a book called Handing Down the Faith, and in it the authors claim parents set a glass ceiling of religious commitment above which their children rarely rise. So if you want your kids to have less anxiety about the future, to care less what other people think of them, to find a relationship with Jesus that will take them into eternity, show them how to magnify the Lord, and the rest will recede to its proper place. Mary was God's choice because she put him first, and she taught Jesus to do the same. Mary also shared God's passion for people. She sang prophetic words about what God would bring about for people on the margins. She was so confident in God's purpose that she sings as if, even before he's born, Jesus has already accomplished these things. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In Mary's day, a deep divide existed between those with power and those without. The Roman Empire ruled. Caesar Augustus was seen as the son of a god, and Herod was happy to abandon the teachings of the Jewish scripture in favor of wealth and power. When Mary and Joseph went to stay in Bethlehem, they would have seen Herod's palace. It would have been impossible to miss because he built it on a hill, a man-made hill that was 2,500 feet high. So while they're giving birth in a stable, Herod is living in the lap of luxury. So it's no wonder that Mary embraced the upheaval of the world she lived in and trusted in the power of God to bring about the great reversal. Do you hear the leveling that's happening in her words? The mighty are brought low and the humble are exalted. The hungry are fed, while the rich leave empty. Her song announces a social revolution to come that still impacts the way people behave thousands of years later. Theologian Warren Carter wrote, Mary articulates an end to economic structures that are exploitative and unjust. She speaks of a time when we all will enjoy the good things given by God. Jesus learned about God's plans from Mary. When we hear Jesus say, blessed are the meek and blessed are the merciful, we hear echoes of Mary's own words. Jesus challenged the rich and the powerful to set aside their hypocrisy. He preached about the futility of serving both God and money. He spoke up for the widow and the orphan. He spent time with people on the margins. His deep love for God compelled his deep love for people. But here's where it all gets really complicated and beautiful. Sometimes the people that you've loved and influenced take your teaching so much to heart that they do things that aren't, well, they're not safe. 
When we pray for our loved ones, we pray for their safety. In fact, as a mother, I can't imagine not praying that prayer. But we should pray more that our children will fulfill God's calling on their lives. Sometimes that will mean traveling to dangerous places or putting themselves in situations where people may mock them or cause them harm. Think of the parents who sent their children off to war or to a faraway mission field, or parents whose children choose professions that daily put them in danger. Pride and fear may do battle in your heart, but who are we to stand in the way of them doing what God has called them to do? It's in those times that I know I pray, God, you love my children more than I do, and I let go. Mary probably didn't understand how Jesus would bring about the form of justice that she longed for, but she had fulfilled her calling so well that he was able to fulfill his. What he understood was that this social revolution wouldn't happen in a moment, and it wouldn't come about through a display of might from the underdog or a bolt of lightning from heaven. It would come about by loving other people. Which is why he took the words of the Shema a step further. Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The longing for justice that Mary planted in Jesus would take shape in a way that she could not have anticipated. And that's a risk when we magnify God, when we put him first and we live our lives with an eternal perspective. Then we have the joy and sometimes the pain of watching those we love do the same. Mary's son fulfilled every prophecy. He has shown strength with his arm, she sang. She just didn't realize that the strength of his arm was in stretching it out in an embrace to the world, stretching it far enough to be nailed to a tree, his life for ours. Will you join Mary in her song this Christmas? Set aside your burdens and the trappings of a world that so easily distracts. Listen to what God is calling you to, and whatever the cost, will you magnify him? Whatever shape that takes, you are called to influence people people for generations to come. May your influence benefit them in this life, and most importantly, may it point them to eternity.